does one actually drop this craving to exist or does it vanish upon the realization of its corelessness by analogy an imaginary tree which had fallen across a road would not be a real obstacle There's a very nice story about that. The story goes like this. There was a monk in his kuti, in his hut, and uh, at night. And uh, he, he woke up from a deep sleep. And by the moonlight that fell in through the window, he could see that there was a huge snake hanging down from the rafter and he was petrified he thought about what he was going to do and uh, first he thought well maybe he could get up and do something but he was far too scared so all night he was lying in the bed and shaking with fear and then when daylight came he could see it was a rope. That's the problem with the craving to exist and the tree that falls across the road. The snake is a rope and the tree is imaginary and so is... Well, the craving is an imaginary. What we're craving for is imaginary. We're craving for the existence of me. That's imaginary. The craving is real because we believe in the me. So, to come back to the original question, as the me illusion is becoming less and less strong and the dispassion towards the world becomes stronger the craving to exist dissolves it's a matter of insight the craving to exist dissolves because it's seen quite clearly that this is a futile craving because the existence does not bring what one thought it might so the insight into the imaginary me and into the non-fulfilling aspect of the world lets this craving to exist disappear. One must never think that the craving to exist must change into a craving not to exist. That is counterproductive because it is still concerned with me. I want to exist or I don't want to exist. I've had the world up to here so I don't want to be there. That doesn't work. Not at all. That's strictly head-tripping. That has nothing to do with the inner gut feeling on, of the realization that the whole thing 
is a hoax. Everything we are concerned with is a complete hoax. And that's why it's really mildly funny. <laughs> Not hilarious, but it's mildly funny. <laughs> so, yes, it does, it does vanish. But it's not the realization of the corelessness of this craving, it's the realization of the corelessness of the one who's craving and who wants to be there. So it does um, dissolve. Patience. <laughs> if one is immersed in the emotional part of self, how does one balance the emotional and the mental? We practice balance that out and then insight into oneself can uh, come more easily. Any help would be appreciated. If the emotions are too much in the foreground, in one's makeup, the first thing one needs to do with them is to change them into the wholesome ones because they do not feel as if one is engulfed. They feel more that one has a bit of uh, control over oneself. You see, if the emotions are the, the unwholesome ones, like anger or pride or rejection or resistance or this feeling of superiority or something like that, the... Uh, they take over and one can't so to say think straight most people can't think straight that's why the world is in the shape it's in so first change the emotions to that which is wholesome and then one has a lot to do with that that takes time and patience and perseverance to do that and having done that it's very necessary to balance the emotional part in oneself with investigation into oneself why am I doing what I'm doing why am I thinking what I'm thinking why am I saying what I'm saying before one says it, not after. Investigating before one is actually saying it can really reduce a lot of problems or eliminate them. Why am I doing this? And most of the time, one will see that there is an emotion behind it. There is the emotion of wanting to be, wanting to be, yes, that's one of them, but wanting to be someone, something needs to be supported. It's either my cleverness that needs to be supported, which is of course a totally useless undertaking. We could play that game in school, but no longer. And other times, maybe my beauty or whatever it is that I like to take pride in. So, 
this investigation is the mental aspect. It's the mind investigating what the mind is actually bringing forth. And without that, you really can't gain insight. Basically, we have all the answers to all the questions within ourselves. But we are usually posing the wrong questions. And that's why we don't get any answers. Because to those questions which we are posing, there are no answers. They are strictly on a viewpoint level. And since there are six, six billion people on this globe, maybe more by now, um, we get six billion uh, viewpoints. So there's no answer. But if we were to learn to pose the right questions, we would have all the answers within us. So, emotional self, first and foremost, the uh, substitution of the unwholesome with the wholesome, over and over again. And secondly, inquiry. Why am I? Why am I reacting like I'm doing? Why am I feeling the way I'm doing? That inquiry will eventually answer the questions that one has. And it will bring clarity. The observer is, a, is no longer the one that has to either think, say, or do what is observing, as we know from our meditation practice. The more one inquires into one's own motivations and intentions, the purer they'll become. Because if one sees their impurity, one will definitely take steps to do something about it. The intention is what makes karma. So if that intention is not totally pure, but is based on self-assertion, then we're not making very good karma. So the inquiry is the main thing. I have never been away for so long a time in inner space. Can you suggest a soft landing <laughs> back in the everyday world? With lots of mail, phone calls, and things to do, can you suggest some practical tips of how to adjust? You'll be surprised how quickly you can get back into that <laughs> chaos. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> it's much more difficult to get back into inner space. <laughs> um, what usually happens is that one might, uh, at the end of the course, get into one's car and then might have to drive on the freeway and uh, the thought comes into the mind, where are all these people going? Why are they all rushing back and forth? What can possibly be the reason for all this? And then one slowly drives home and then one thinks, oh, look at all the stuff I have to do. Wasn't it nice? when I was still in the meditation retreat. 
while in the meditation retreat, of course, one was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be home? I could attend to my garden and I could attend to my mail and I could uh, maybe uh, ring up my relations and let them know what I've been doing. So now we are home. So, of course, we think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be back there? And uh, which is the usual way it happens. And then we look at all the stuff we have to do and we just slowly get into it. And it takes usually half a day. <laughs> and it's right back where one was. Because it all looks very important. All these people that write letters and make phone calls and all these things one has to do, they all seem so important. They don't seem as if they were something that is just happening. They are something that's happening to me. And therefore, it's very important. And it does underwrite that I have many people that want something from me. And while I might say that it is uh, too exhausting or that it is uh, far too much, one has actually brought it about on oneself. So, the best thing to do is to do it with love. Whatever it is that needs to be done. And to remind oneself that if one is dead, somebody else will do it just as well. And that takes away a little bit of one's importance. There's always someone else that will do it just as well. In fact, there might be somebody who can do it better. <laughs> that too is possible. <laughs> I've been in the third jhana several times without difficulty. Recently, though, as I'm moving down into it, I seem to have some anxiety breathing. What I'm experiencing now is the same feeling I had in the third jhana before, but it's pushed back, and I can't get off feeling the breath. What do you think? I think it's a pity. Also, could you talk about the kundalini energy and headaches? Somebody else having that problem. The, uh, if in the third jhana this uh, problem arises of uh, feeling the breath, it's a matter of having the mind in the wrong spot. It's a matter of having the mind on the breath instead of on the feeling of calm or contentment. So it needs a little more determination to stay with that which is more important. What's more important, the breath or the calm? It's a mute question, isn't it? So one just has to take the mind off that which at that time one doesn't want to or need to know. At that time we don't have any particular connection with the breath. The breath was the method or the medium to get us concentrated, but once being concentrated, there's no need for it any further to be observed. 
We're always breathing. We're breathing right now. But we're hardly observing that. So we don't have to observe it. We have to take the mind off it. Kundalini energy can come, doesn't have to come through concentration and it comes up the spine from the bottom to the top and it is extremely important to let it out at the top of the head. If one doesn't do that, one can easily get a headache. One doesn't have to, but one can easily. It depends very much on the uh, robustness of a person. If a person is rather frail, they're bound to have a headache, without a doubt. Um, Kundalini energy has two things which are useful. It moves the energy from one's lower, what are called the chakras, from one's lower energy points at the bottom to the higher energy points to the mental. So, it has that advantage. And also, it does provide a um, basis for concentration because the concentration through that renewed energy does become better. So, if this spontaneously arises, it can be very useful. It has to be let out at the top and one doesn't have to look for it. One can meditate without it just as well. But some people do get it spontaneously, and so they can use it for that. But if they don't let it out at the top, they could get, they don't have to, they could get a headache. If one gets a headache in meditation, the thing to do is to use the sleeping method and go to the pain spot on the head, wherever that may be, and sweep down through the ear and out, both ears, and do that as often as necessary, ten times if it's necessary. It usually takes care of that within a very short period. Any meditator can get rid of headaches. Meditators do get headaches when they have result thinking, when they tense up and say, I want to get something, and then they do get headaches. So that particular method of sleeping is very helpful to just go down and let it out through both ears. It usually works for everybody. As one moves through the final stages to enlightenment, sensual desire diminishes to something or other. I can't read that. Then even preference disappears. Since nothing matters, nothing matters life like, oh goodness, may I suggest to use a pen instead of a pencil? I can't read it. Life is like, okay, life is like building toy castles with children. Somebody has listened well. I can see no longer preferring chocolate to lima beans, but what, are, what about preferring clean air to smog or preferring well cared for children to abused children? 
are these two mere toy castles? On the level that this is being asked, the answer is in the questioner. I don't think I need to answer that one. If this is a path to total freedom, why is an enlightened one without any choice to return to the human realm? I think whoever is asking this must be having a dreadful time with the meditation again because these thoughts are totally irrelevant to the meditative path, both of them. But, and they don't, and it's for totally wrongly conceived because what does total freedom mean? Does it mean whatever one wants to do, one can do? Total freedom means freedom from dukkha and freedom from self. That's what it means. It's just another word for Nibbana. Just another uh, translation. This is word place. Could a non-returner choose rebirth in the Deva realm instead of seeking enlightenment and assist humans for eons as a Deva? A non-returner would do exactly that because that is what exactly what happens. If he can't get to be Arahant, that's what happens to him. Why not try to actually practice instead of having all this kind of mental convolutions which is all asked from the wrong level? The reason I ask these questions is that one must be, one must be free of trouble of body and mind to practice. And my experience is that most people aren't. I'd rather help them to start practicing than take the final step myself. This is the basis for my practice. And since I have no understood experience of enlightenment, it is hard to accept on faith that completing the path somehow immeasurably helps others. May I ask whether there has been any notice taken of the fact that the Buddha finished the path and is trying to help us? Any notice taken of that? Anybody noticed it? The immeasurable help that the Buddha is giving cannot be compared to anything else. So, with all that logic, it's not logical. This is what we're experiencing. We're experiencing the Buddha's enlightenment and his help. And this is what... And if one prides oneself that one can actually help others without first having helped oneself, one needs to investigate oneself a little better. One can only give to others what one has already gained oneself. Nothing other can ever come out of that. So the, um, the help we can give is totally dependent upon anything that we have done. 
If there's a beggar and we'd like to give him some money and we haven't made any money, now pockets are empty. Are we going to be able to help? Or can we just have good intentions? I'm having a hard time trusting that the Buddha had 500 previous lives, that he could know about them, I mean. And I have the same difficulty with concepts like the Bardo realms and other kinds of realms, hungry ghosts and so on. My 20th century mind boggles and skeptical doubt arises. I wouldn't bother to think of such things at all, except for the fact that I must somehow deal with my skeptical doubt. And I don't know how to, if I tell myself I must believe it because the Buddha said so. It's part of what he taught. The words stick in my throat. If I drop it all from my mind, because it's got nothing to do with where I am at this moment on the path and in my practice, that doesn't seem to remove the niggling skeptical doubt either. Please, can you help? Well, the best thing to do with that sort of thing is (coughs) to leave it in abeyance. We don't have to understand and know everything. All we have to do is practice. And if we leave this in abeyance and say, all right, at this moment in time, I'm neither aware of such a thing, nor have I got any understanding of it. But it's possible that eventually I might. Then the whole thing is no longer a topic. It's just done with. There's so many things people leave in abeyance which they could, to great advantage, take care of immediately. (laughs) So why not leave in abeyance something like that? (laughs) Which, obviously, we can't take care of immediately. So we just leave it. And uh, certainly there are things in our culture which speak against these things. Our culture, wherever we go in the West, is technology. This is the time for technology. And we pride ourselves how clever we are. We've even gone to the moon decades ago. And whom did that make happy? Maybe the man that actually did it. But did we get happy from that? Does it make any difference to our feelings? So our technology is a matter of pride and it's also a matter of comfort. But it's already tipping the scale the other way it's starting to become uncomfortable, which those things usually do. Now, in the Buddhist time, he was living in a time of, and in a place, in a society, of great spiritual search and endeavor and also of faith, not necessarily in him. The whole... Brahmin society 
was imbued with the Rig Vedas, which are much older than the Buddha's teaching, they're 5,000 years old. So that such statements in his time were easily acceptable. But if we had said to somebody who came to listen to the Buddha's teaching, my friend went to the moon yesterday, they wouldn't have believed a word of it. They would have said, that's impossible. They wouldn't even have said that. They would have just been shaking their head. Even in the scriptures, there is a description of higher knowledges, abhinyanas, and one of them is the ability to stroke the sun and the moon with one's own hands. Now, how do we take that? What do we do there? I don't know. And yet, if we were to tell them that we actually went to the moon, we know somebody who did, they'd think we're crazy. So, we're living in a different sort of society, we're living in a different understanding, and we're living in a different relationship to the world around us. We're trying to scientifically ascertain what is really there. And do you know, it's impossible. Nobody has managed. All the old signs have been thrown out and the new signs ends with, there's more. Nobody has been able to really ascertain what is there. And yet, this is the main underpinnings of our whole society the scientific explanation of everything around us. So, by the same token, as they would have a hard time understanding us, we have a hard time understanding them when it comes to things which are not concerned with one's own personal feelings, emotions, reactions and thoughts, or one's own meditation. It is said over and over again, that an enlightened one can, if he wants to, know his or her past lives, if one wants to. There's a certain um, method for doing that, which one can learn if one wants to. And uh, if one isn't enlightened, it's strictly being curious. It's just curiosity. And that curiosity if one actually learns the method and can do it, is usually ill-placed because the dukkha of past lives on top of the dukkha in this life is almost too much. So it's much better one doesn't have any truck with it. An enlightened one doesn't have dukkha, so it's okay to look at 500 past lives. So... Some of these things that are being talked about in the Pali Canon do seem strange to us. But I've often wondered 
what the Buddha would say if he came around today. Wouldn't things look strange to him too? Very strange. All the things that we take for granted that have to do with technology, all of that would look extremely strange. That's putting it mildly. So I would leave this in abeyance. Just like anyone in the Buddhist time would have to leave in abeyance whether we really can go to the moon. They might think we can't, but they'd have to leave it in abeyance if they wouldn't, don't want to get worried about it. And it's the same for us. If we don't want to worry about such a thing, we'll just let it go. And say, not now, maybe later. And if it's not happening later, it doesn't matter either. Because it's not to go on this path and have the benefits of it does not require that one knows one's past lives. And it does not require that one believe any of this. But if one goes further on this path, it comes to a kind of a feeling about the Buddha which says, it must be so, even though I myself don't know about it. But it's not necessary in the beginning. Because it doesn't help anything on the path. I have a friend, a non-meditator, who has expressed an interest in learning to meditate. When I return home, it is possible he will express his interest again. I want to be encouraging, and at the same time, I'm aware of my lack of qualification to teach him. To simply hand him a book along with some words of encouragement, on the other hand, seems to be lacking some of the sincerity I wish to offer him, as a noble friend, what suggestions can you offer? Well, actually, that's a question that uh, does arise um, several times for people or for several people. And I think anyone who has learned to meditate and has done that for some time can quite usefully explain the um, attention on the breath and can also explain the loving-kindness meditation and the walking meditation. These are three methods which are not in themselves difficult to explain or difficult to follow the explanation that is difficult to do is another thing and the friend will soon find out I, I would uh, suggest that one also um, adds the labeling for a beginner it's definitely a beginning step to label the distracting thoughts and um, 
also gives the possibilities of uh, either counting or a word or if the person is very visually inclined, a visualization of the ocean wave or if one can think of something else, why not? Uh, something that is rhythmic and uh, or the sensations. These are all suitable for beginners and then of course mentioning that um, one can drop any of these crutches if the concentration should come about and offer to be of assistance whenever that friend has any question. I think this is the um, stance of a noble friend to share what oneself has learned, that one is not um, uh, perfect is uh, lies with the fact that one isn't an arahant. But if this friend has to wait for, for an arahant, he may never get to meditation <laughs> in Las Vegas of all places. <laughs> so I, I would definitely um, share everything that um, one can uh, uh, give this uh, friend in the way of an explanation of the methods. I would not, under any circumstances, burden him with the possibility of the jhanas until he has actually stuck to his meditation for some considerable time and has come back to say that he has had this or that um, feeling or sensation so that there's a certain indication that he actually has become concentrated and has actually persevered. Uh, then one can uh, broach that subject. The, um, I don't think it's necessary to have any qualifications. In fact, it seems to me that a lot of people are teaching that uh, might uh, be put in that kind of category and uh, it doesn't really matter does it as long as one gets some benefit out of it and people do get benefit out of it one of the things that one could also do and um, which might be very useful if, is, uh, if it's possible to offer to actually sit with that person to offer to let him come him or her to one's home and at certain times, at a certain evening or a certain day, and sit together with that person. It's very encouraging to have somebody to sit with and uh, also to offer to answer questions. So I see absolutely no reason not to um, discuss it. And in fact, one might even, well... That's a dicey thing. But one might even go that far that if this friend has expressed an interest in learning to meditate and does not come around, might even um, go to that friend and see whether in the conversation which ensues any interest is expressed. Because interest can also wane, of course, and then one doesn't have you know, the opening. So if there's any opening, I would definitely exp uh, explain. 
I would not uh, try to teach the, um, the sweeping. It is in my book, and people do go through the book and try to do it. doesn't amount to much, doesn't come to much when they haven't got the uh, personal instruction. I wouldn't do that because people do get some unpleasant sensations from it and it might put them off meditation for, for the rest of their lives if these unpleasant sensations aren't properly explained as being something very good and excellent and to be encouraged. So I think one should stick to attention on the breath, walking meditation, and loving-kindness meditation. And if any more help is needed, if one can't remember it all or whatever, one can always listen to a tape or have the friend listen to a loving-kindness tape and offer to sit with a friend. I would definitely um, uh, feel that anyone who has learned enough to get concentrated is able to tell others how to do it. They may not be able to run a whole meditation course, but certainly get them started and then possibly even point them in the right direction. So I would definitely do that. You have stated it is necessary to make a clear distinction between meditative method and actual meditation. What is actual meditation? I assume it to be the third meditative step. It is full meditation that you have discussed. Full concentration, that should be called, that I have discussed. This would mean that actual meditation is the attainment of one or more of the jhanic states. Are there other possibilities for actual meditation outside of the meditative absorptions? The word samadhi, in itself, even without the word sama in front, sama means right, but even without that word in front, has no other connotation. That's all it means. And I'm sure most people have read books where the word samadhi is used. It's not an uncommon word anymore. People see it in all sorts of books, particularly in books which uh, are concerned with any kind of the uh, um, Hindu practices. And samadhi just doesn't mean anything else. And that is the eighth step on the Noble Eightfold Path. That's all it means. And every mind that's concentrated, every human mind that's concentrated, goes there. One can stop oneself, of course, by thinking I, it's not necessary. Um, what else can one think? Uh, I've t been told not to do it. It's... Um, I don't know what other uh, objections one can find. Whatever objections one can find, of course, will stop one from doing it. But any mind, any human mind that gets concentrated goes in that direction, goes along that pathway. Whether one wants to or not, it does it automatically. And it happens to everyone. 
and then of course one can stop oneself or others stop one so everything else are methods now there are two kinds of methods there are methods to get calm and there are methods to get insight so there are so to say insight meditation methods and calm meditation methods now when we do for instance the sleeping the part by part it can produce both when we watch the breath it can produce both when there are certain insight methods where we attend to the parts of the body one doesn't usually experience calm usually insight from it so it's either one or the other or both depending on which priority one puts one's attention if one puts one's attention on the impermanence of the breath on the moment to moment flux and flow of the breath well that's for insight and if one puts one's attention on the continual flow of the breath and stays with it well that's for calm and then it goes into the jhanas sama samadhi and i did read it out out of the uh, mahasatipatthana sutta the uh, great discourse on the foundations of mindfulness the eight steps on the noble eightfold path means the jhanas all eight of them it's very important and essential to practice methods and this is uh, one of the great boons that we have uh, from the buddha's teaching that is full of different methods there's um, what we have done here it's only uh, a small part of all the methods which are available the buddha taught 40 of them and some of them are strictly for insight and um, when we look at that as a method to gain insight then of course that can also when the mind becomes quiet and contented with the insight produce the jhanas so when we look at the seven factors of enlightenment four of those factors are the first four jhanas they just belong to the path and the uh, of course when one starts meditation one has to do something else one can't well most people anyway can't start with the jhanas most people have to start with trying to get concentrated and uh, gaining some insight and gaining some calm and a little bit of calm produces a little bit of insight and a little bit of insight produces a little bit of calm so the actual meditation which is depicted in the words of summer samadhi are the jhanas but there are many methods which are extremely useful and helpful and they are on both sides calm and insight 
you have also said that mindfulness of breathing is a method. Once a state of true meditation is reached, I assume that mindfulness has temporarily ceased to have a function. That would be dreadful. Or has one moved from a lower order of mindfulness, it is of breathing, to full pure awareness, sati, which you comment on pure awareness as it relates to concentration and to insight. If one hasn't any mindfulness, bear attention to the state of the jhana, one is going into trance. And that would be highly undesirable. And knowing that, uh, experiencing that, one would know afterwards what one has experienced because one would want to go to bed and sleep. Whereas after having been mindful and fully aware and awake, and having experienced the jhana, one feels very energetic. One feels far more energetic than one did before. So mindfulness, which is one of the factors which lead one to the concentration and to the meditation, is not discarded. In fact, mindfulness becomes a matter of course. Nothing else is possible because the mind has a habit of mindfulness. And when it becomes a matter of course, then it's also used outside of meditation as a matter of course. And in meditation, without it, there's no meditation. But it is that it's a seventh step on the Noble Eightfold Path. And all the steps are really cause and effect, dependent origination. The Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path are the same dependent origination that we can find in a more elaborate system depicted, for instance, on that picture on the wall there. But mindfulness is the seven steps, and right mindfulness will bring right concentration but that doesn't mean we can get rid of it of right mindfulness in fact it is that one pointedness that remains throughout any meditative state that's a very important point one should never have any doubts about the function of mindfulness and one necessarily needs to learn mindfulness first. That's why it's always emphasized to use mindfulness outside of the meditation. If we don't learn mindfulness, we were not going to learn meditation. So the one supports the other. Mindfulness supports the meditation. Pure awareness. Pure awareness is the same as bare attention. And there is a certain purity in it because it does not allow for hate and greed. 
if one is absolutely attentive, fully awake and aware, and knows exactly what's happening in the moment, it's impossible to have hate or greed. The uh, pure awareness as it relates to concentration is the one-pointedness. One doesn't waver from one's attention. One is fully awake and aware to that which is really going on. And that kind of concentration can bring about a more profound insight and being fully aware and fully attentive to that insight and knowing its meaning then one has full awareness of that insight. Insights do not always come in exactly the same way and particularly not to different people but also not to the same person. It isn't always this is so impermanent. There can be quite different recognitions of the way that human life and the universe operate and particularly when we see it in ourselves. So mindfulness, which is bare attention or pure awareness because it doesn't make any judgment. That's what's pure about it. And because it doesn't get hate or greed included in it. Mindfulness of one's own mental and emotional states is the only way that we will find wisdom because we then have the understood experience. Our own mental and emotional states bring with it all our hindrances, all our identifications, all our cravings. So when we see them clearly and are fully awake and aware to them and understand them for what they are, then comes insight. So mindfulness of mental states and emotions and not judging, not criticizing, knowing, knowing only. Mindfulness is essential. It is that part of the teaching which is always present, whether there is concentration to the full extent or whether there's only a little. If there's only a little concentration, there's a little mindfulness. And the more the concentration progresses, the easier it is to be mindful. Because the mind doesn't swerve. It just stays with it. Without mindfulness, which is pure awareness, there is no way we ever recognize ourselves. And if we don't recognize ourselves, 
there's nothing we can change. And if we don't recognize ourselves, we'll never find the illusion of self. The illusion of self lies in the the recognition of that, lies in the mindfulness to our own mental and emotional states. I'm noticing that as I settle down into the meditation, there's a feeling of warmth at the bottom of my spine. I've been told that this is the Kundalini energy, which is connected with specific chakras. Yesterday you mentioned it also in answer to a question. I notice that the more (coughs) I focus my attention on it, the stronger it grows, becoming quite an intense heat. But for that to happen, of course, I have to take the attention off the breath. I really haven't a clue what to do about it. Isn't using chakras another way of meditating? I know nothing about them, actually. I think I should mention that this heat is noticeable at some other times, too, not just when I'm meditating, just like having a little oven at the bottom of my spine. Please, can you advise me if and how I should incorporate it into my practice? A kundalini energy it has two benefits. One is the transformation of one's lower energies into the higher energies. The lower chakras, which are, so to say, at the bottom end of one's body, and the higher chakras, which are at this if we call this the top end, at the top end of the body. And if we transform the lower energies into the higher energies, in other words, let the energy rise, then that can be beneficial. It's essential that one lets that heat get out of the top of the head, otherwise one can easily have a headache, and it can become so intense that the energy which is generated becomes extremely unpleasant. So it has to be let out. The second benefit is that it helps with concentration. Because it adds to the mental energy, it can facilitate concentration. If one can get into the first and second and third jhana anyway, one doesn't need it. If one can't, one can use it and use it as a beginning step instead of the breath and then move from that sensation to the sensations of the first jhana. It's possible to do that if one is able to let go of this excess energy through the top of the head. If there's excess, one can't let go of it. It becomes overwhelming. So if one can if one can get into the jhanas anyway, there's no need to use it. If one can't, one can use it if it arises spontaneously. One doesn't have to look for it. There's no need to look for it. It's not necessary. If one happen if it happens outside of meditation, let it come up the spine and out the top of the head. And it may be helpful in creating more mental energy and therefore more inner stability.
Mental energy produces stability, not intellect. Mental energy is not synonymous with intellect. Intellect is a way of looking at things through an analytical eye. But the mental energy can be extremely helpful in creating uh, the ability of seeing through things and therefore one feels more at ease. So if that is a spontaneous arriving, one can use it. Whenever it does become unpleasant, one should immediately let go of it, of course, and let go of it if it doesn't go by itself, let go of it through the sweeping method. One goes to the place which has become unpleasant and lets go out through the skin. That's the quickest way of doing that. I have never before heard a teaching directly from the suttas, and I have enjoyed this method very much. Other than your own tapes, can you recommend any commentaries that would be useful when studying on one's own? Uh, yes, there's a little blue catalog lying on the table back there by the Buddhist Publication Society, and if you write to them, and the address is a on or in the catalog on the first page. If you write to them, ask them to send you a catalog and enclose enough uh, international reply coupons to get it by airmail, because otherwise it takes forever. Um, you will find in it a section of real booklets which are all translations from the suttas. And they are the best translations available. And also, they have a commentary, practically all of them, have a commentary by either Venerable Nyanaponika or Bhikkhu Bodhi or anyone of the Pali scholars who really know the Dhamma in and out. And their commentaries are extremely helpful. So you will find in the real booklet the uh, Sutta's translation itself and the commentary. You will also find in that catalog that there are uh, larger books of Sutta's translated also by either Bhikkhu Bodhi or Venerable Nanachiloka, Venerable Nanaponika, um, all of them Western monks. Bhikkhu Bodhi is American. And uh, all with their commentary. In fact, usually, the sutta takes up the least space. And uh, you will see how that is uh, usually the case if you compare the sutta that I have read out to you with the number of tapes that have resulted from that. The sutta takes up the least space. The commentary is uh, far more than that. So this is a, the most useful way I have found to learn the Dhamma. I can think of nothing more useful than to know exactly what the Buddha taught. To use those wheel booklets. In the wheel booklets you will find there's only one sutta. 
So it isn't as if one has to read and learn a whole batch of them all at once. There's one. And I'd like to repeat once more what I've said once before because I think it's important that if one reads that, one can read it through and read the commentary, but then one should start all over again and make notes of the essence of the teaching found on each page. Because in the suttas, there is an essential teaching at least on each page. And then, after having done that in telegram style, learning that essence by heart, and it doesn't take much because one's written it down in telegram style, and then, having learned it by heart, applying it in one's life, and then, having applied it, checking out whether one can actually do it, and then read the next page. These are teaching books. They are not uh, the kind of books that we usually read for um, gaining additional knowledge or for entertainment. It's neither that nor this. The knowledge which is contained in them is the knowledge of the human being. Me, in other words. And the only reason to read them and know them is in order to make use of them. So, if, we do, if one does that, one gets a full understanding and a realization of oneself and a way to practice. And I have found nothing better than those real booklets. And they are quite inexpensive also compared to the books that we, have, that we sometimes have to pay for in the West. So I can highly recommend them. Is there more than one translation of the Visuddhimagga? No, there isn't. There's only one translation of the Visuddhimagga, and it's the best there is. It's by Venerable Nyanamuli, and who was an um, English monk, is long dead, died at a fairly young age in Sri Lanka, and uh, it's a very good translation. If so, can you also recommend a good one for browsing or learning some of the historical background of the teachings? No, the Visuddhimagga does not contain the historical background that much. There's a, I, can't, I don't think there's even a, an index in the beginning. It's very little anyway. The uh, historical background of the teaching is more likely to be found in the books which are dealing with the life of the Buddha. And you will find those also in the BPS, in the BPS catalog, The Life of the Buddha. There's one by Francis Story, which is very good. And uh, I think that would be better for historical background. Uh, the Visuddhimagga does not lend itself to browsing. It is uh, most unsuitable for that. I can think of nothing worse than the Visuddhimagga for browsing. <laughs> I like browsing in books, but not that one. Um, that one is for like a reference library. 
you know, if you are studying something uh, in, in school or at the university and you want to look for references and you want to have a uh, clearer and more uh, profound explanation of something or more extensive explanation, that's what the Visuddhimagga is for. It's for more extensive explanation of the main facets of the teaching. In fact, the uh, ex- explanations are so extensive that the book is about that thick. And uh, each important feature of the teaching is elaborately explained. And so elaborately explained that few people have the patience to actually go through it. Scholars use it extensively. Teachers in the Theravada tradition should use it extensively because it gives highlights. It gives new viewpoints which one can use. There are people who love it. They're few and far between. Most people use it because it is useful. It's so repetitive and sometimes so the obvious things are repeated over and over again that one needs a lot of patience and perseverance to get through get through it but as one gets used to it one knows where to open it when one is looking for something so one can regard it as a dictionary of the Buddha's teaching and if one looks at it that way then one has great um, value from it a dictionary which um, Yeah, like the Oxford Dictionary, which tells the meanings of words. So this, it's just as fat, the Visuddhimagga, and uh, it tells the um, meaning of the most important teaching. And there's only one English um, translation, so one can't go wrong. mentioned last night that one becomes energetic after doing the jhanas. In that case, I believe it would not be advisable to meditate prior to going to bed. I have heard that the best time to meditate is between 4.30 a.m. and 6 a.m. Is that true? If so, would it be advisable to start the retreat meditations earlier? <laughs> well, <laughs> that depends on one's own preferences, <laughs> whatever one likes. There are people who quite tr- truly 
meditate best that early in the morning. But uh, there are lots of them that don't and that need to drink black coffee, do breathing exercises, have a cold shower, and give themselves a pep talk before they can actually do anything. So, and, and it's quite true that there are people who are more energetic in the morning and others more in the evening. So um, one has to find one's own best time. The uh, meditation which is best to do uh, before going to bed is the loving-kindness meditation, which is um, certainly one that, as the Buddha said, one falls asleep easily and one has no evil dreams and one wakes happily. So that's the one that's most advisable to do just before going to bed or already having gone to bed, one can do it. Is it possible to go immediately into the fourth jhana after resting, sorry, this afternoon when I sat down, I immediately experienced great stillness, the light which is common, no, common, 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 so just a minute, common in the, in the, earlier jhanas was gone the light which is common I think or something like that in the earlier jhanas was gone it was either quite dark or there was only slight traces of light so that's alright what I was reading also my breathing was much slower and seemed lower in my body my thoughts were for a far and few between. When I did have a thought, it seemed very loud and uh, abrasive. There were still outside sounds. How do I proceed? Well, yes, it is possible to go into the fourth jhana without uh, attending to the first three, but it's not advisable at all because one doesn't know where one is and uh, there's no proceeding there. It's entirely essential to do it step by step. Once having become proficient at all of them, one can do what one likes. But when one's learning them, one needs to do each one. So when there are thoughts which are far and few between, that's not fourth jhana, Um, it could be third, more likely, or a beginning of fourth also. Fourth has different levels. It starts at a fairly, um, well, a level which is not so deep yet, and then it goes deeper. Um, It can very well be dark, that's quite true, and one doesn't really pay any attention to the breath. 
as long as one pays attention to the breath one isn't in the jhana it's either or the breath is the key when we've opened the door and go back to fiddling with the key there's no way we can walk into the mansion so not paying attention to the breath is an essential aspect of the jhanas in fact not paying attention to anything except what's happening right there it is not advisable to um, be satisfied with going into a very uh, quiet place and not knowing exactly where one is because one only knows where one is when one has done the others as one has taken each step one knows exactly where one is but if one hasn't then it's a sort of a, a mystery and the jhanas are no mystery they're exactly what the mind can do so if one is in that state which has been described here uh, then one can if one is able to go back backward to what the next one is and since one doesn't know exactly where one is it might be better to start all over again as long as one has step by step there's no question where one is and there's no question what's next and also there's no question whether it's a full uh, concentration or whether it is something which is working towards that concentration which is hard to say in this case but it's uh, as I say not advisable to do just go to the fourth one if it happens sure one can go backwards go three to one and then one knows where one is every time I sit to meditate the ego struggles to assert itself at the expense of the meditation yeah, most egos do that um, what hindrance would it be if any I would have left the if any off um, any one of them all five hindrances are due to ego assertion there is no other cause or reason for a hindrance that's all it can be the ego always plays its games and it does that for everyone now some people some people's games are a bit worse than others but uh, it's only a very slight difference so one needs to investigate what is it am I having sensual desire or am I having dislike aversion or am I having sloth and torpor or am I having restlessness and worry or am I having skeptical doubt or am I having a combination of two or three of them which is also possible anything is possible anything is possible inside or outside of meditation it can happen so it is quite uh, helpful to inquire which is the hindrance that's uh, bothering me most in my meditation so that one can then possibly either let go or inquire again why is it coming up what is, what is it in me that's arousing that one why am I not really concentrated but I have to struggle with whatever it may be the struggle with the hindrance must not 
get into a battle, then we have me battling me. And uh, not only is that counterproductive, but it's also can bring about a feeling of frustration. Because me battling me, it's not really something that one can lay a hold of or put one's finger on. So it's much better to inquire, to find out which hindrance and why has it come. And every time we get an answer, it's a new question. And not trying to push it aside, but through that inquiry recognize that it's uh, useless and not helpful, that it's not beneficial, and being able to let go. The key word in all spiritual practice is letting go. There is nothing other than that which really counts. And we have a lot of stuff we can let go of, and here's one which would be very useful. And also, if we recognize which one of the hindrances comes up most, we can deal with it in daily life. Because each one of the hindrances has an antidote for daily life. And we have gone through those. So, um, if we know what's bothering us, it's much easier to deal with it. And not to battle it, but to find out the cause for it and then learn to drop it, at least for the time of the meditation. Can you tell us about your experience in learning the jhanas? How you went about it? Your teacher, how you overcame obstacles at different points, how big, no, sorry, that's wrong, how long it took you, anything that you think would be helpful to us to know. Well, first of all, I would like to state that I have tried to tell you everything I know that could be helpful. <laughs> Absolutely everything. I can't think of a thing that I have left out. Maybe if I give another course, maybe something new will arise in my mind that I might add. I've been adding all the time, but at this point in time, I've tried my level best. Um, my own experience in, in, in learning the jhanas is um, not very um, um, helpful to anyone, because I had to learn them by myself. There was no teacher. And I just used the uh, in guidelines and instructions of the Buddha and sat down to do it. And when I did mention the first jhana to a teacher that was around, I was told, as so often is the case, go back to the breath. But since I knew better already, my own common sense told me that that can't be so, so I kept on going. I finally did find a teacher who knew about the jhanas, who had done them, 
and could confirm them. And that teacher, the Venerable Nyanarama in Sri Lanka, then asked me to please teach them in the West because they had become a lost art, as quite a few of you know from personal experience. A lost art in so far that they're not being taught. When I met him, I had already done it, so I, all me, I needed was confirmation. Confirmation that that was the way it was, and that it was the right way to go about it. Um, the only obstacle that I can remember would have been a lack of concentration. That's all I can remember. If the mind plays games, one can't do the jhana. Obviously. Everybody knows that. So that's not very helpful, is it? <laughs> it's not so difficult to get into the first, second and third. I think like most people can vouch for that. The fourth is more difficult. And many of the suttas stop at the fourth. They don't go any further. But some do. And the last one we uh, discussed here certainly went further. And uh, I, of course, kept studying the suttas. And uh, I can only tell you sort of a story what I did. It's, uh, I don't think there's any helpful hints in it. <laughs> we were having a full moon sit in my monastery in Australia, Wat Buddha Dhamma. And it was cold and drafty in the hall because it was a miserable old hall. Actually, people liked it, but only in summer. In the autumn and winter, it was really miserable. And it was about 12 o'clock midnight, and I was rather unhappy And uh, because there were another at least five hours to go, and I'd had it. And uh, it was cold, and I didn't feel all that well, and uh, was sitting there. And, and then I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. Why should I be unhappy? Why don't I do what the Buddha said? Why don't I go into the formless jhanas? And I knew their names, and I knew what the Buddha had said. So I sat down and did it. It's all I can remember. And then, of course, I wasn't unhappy anymore. In fact, I was very happy that I had to sit there till five o'clock in the morning because I was quite determined to practice it so that it would become stable. And uh, I enjoyed that. And as so often, so many times, in so many meditators' lives, dukkha produces the best results. Because one gets sick and tired of having dukkha. The mind one day says, it's enough. And even if one has been able to organize and arrange one's life really well and has a sort of um, idea that one can have pleasure when one wants it and cope as one wishes, dukkha always comes back. It is by far the best teacher. There was a teacher present at the time. But I don't need him at all. I didn't need that. 
I just needed Paducah to tell me now, come on, do something. That's all I can say about this. I have no further um, ideas how to get in there easier. Loving kindness helps. Concentration helps. Not wanting them helps. Letting go helps. Allowing the mind to go along its natural pathway. A concentrated mind cannot go along any other pathway. Of course, it has to become concentrated first. But it doesn't have to become concentrated to the point where one feels a sort of um, contraction. That too happens to people. They try to be so concentrated, they feel a contraction in the mind. So it's pulling together. That's not necessary. It's letting go of everything else and being there experiencing that one moment nothing else not trying to describe that one moment which is a great uh, hindrance to tranquility and serenity description is the mind made formation which is is using again the um, mental abilities to do something. If a jhana says nothing to be done, there's only to be experienced. So, it's actually much easier than one thinks. Many people who have had contact with Buddhist meditation for a fairly long time have heard from different sources that it's terribly difficult, that it can't be done, that one doesn't need to do it, that uh, all sorts of ideas. And I've probably believed that. It's neither difficult, nor can it not be done, and uh, that it's not necessary. The Buddha's own experience speaks against that. So the uh, self-made difficulties are usually grasping for something. Grasping for concentration, grasping for results. All one has to do is let go. I have no further um, guidelines that I can give. I would give them to you if I had them. I assure you. There's one of the mudras, one of the hand movements in this tradition, there are only five in this tradition, which shows the Buddha with his right hand in his lap and the left hand, the palm, open to uh, the outside, in front of his left knee. And the meaning of that is what he said, I have taught with an open hand, never with a closed fist. There are no secrets. Those are his words, and that mudra is nothing but a symbol for that. And by the same token, no secrets. But one's got to do it. I have a friend who meditates and studies the Buddhist Sutta. He objects when he hears people liken life or the Dhamma as reality to 
a school. He said it is wrong view to ascribe any intention to teach us a lesson to our experiences, which are just results of natural laws. He says this makes a person or God out of the Dhamma, and the Buddha never used this view of life as a teacher in his suttas. So it must be important to make this distinction. Do you think he's correct, or is it just a case of semantic differences between relative and absolute reality? Well, frankly speaking, I think it's more than a semantic difference. I think it's a total misunderstanding of the person. If that person is being quoted correctly, then I would say that person is totally misunderstanding.